Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. The question that Paul is addressing in chapters 9 through 11 is why has God rejected Israel when he clearly promised to Abraham that he would pour out his blessings on them? And what we saw is that it's not because God has failed on his promise or that he is unjust or that he is unfair. None of those things are true. But rather that God in his sovereignty chose some over others. And some of those people whom God had chosen were Gentiles. And God has not chosen all Jews. That it is completely appropriate and just of God for Him to make a promise to the Jews and yet not choose all the Jews to be saved. But from a human perspective, why is it that Israel is not enjoying God's blessing? The answer is, as we saw in chapter 10, is that they have been proud and unbelieving. And we finish chapter 10 by seeing that God holds out His hand to a disobedient and obstinate people. And so now the question in chapter 12 is, then what was the point of the promise to Abraham? What was all this talk about land and riches and peace and blessing? I mean, does this mean that Israel has been set aside permanently? Does Israel's rejection of Christ mean that God is setting Israel aside permanently? That's what we want to answer here. That's what I think Paul wants us to answer here in chapter 11. So let me begin reading in verse 1. We'll read the first ten verses. This is the Word of God. I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Or do you not know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed Your prophets, they have torn down Your altars, and I alone am left and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious, gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. Notice how verse 1 is connected to chapter 10. He says, I say then. So Paul here is drawing a conclusion on what he said at the end of chapter 10, which is that faith is necessary for anyone in order to have a right relationship with God. And so what we'll see this morning is that God has not abandoned Israel. God has not abandoned Israel. The problem is not on the part of God. The problem is that Israel does not believe. They are obstinate. They are a, a, um, 
A disobedient, chapter 10, verse 21, they are a disobedient and obstinate people. God keeps holding His hand out to them, and yet they resist Him. For the previous 2,000 years, from the time of Abraham to the time of Paul, God had promised that they would receive land and rest and protection from their enemies. This is what He had promised to Abraham. And yet, during that time, Israel only received that land and that rest and that protection of enemies for only a short period of time. Can you think with me about when those two times were? First, it was when Joshua led them into the promised land. I mean, how long would that capturing of the land and the rest and the protection from the enemies last? Right? It was only a generation before Israel lost it in the time of the judges when they did what was right in their own eyes. Well, they regained it back during the time of King David when he restored the land and, and the people enjoyed God's blessing in that way, but only to lose it in the next generation to a divided kingdom under Solomon or Jeroboam and, and then eventually to exile. And then Jesus came along. And the promises are still there. Land, rest, and protection from enemies. Jesus comes along, the King of kings, the King of Israel, and yet what happens to the land? Israel doesn't get the land back, do they? Nor did did Jesus provide for them the ultimate rest or protection from their enemies like was promised to Abraham. And, And then Jesus dies. And where is the nation of Israel left? They're still left under the tyranny of Rome. They still do not possess the land. They still do not have rest. And so what gives? Was the promise to Abraham only meant for the people during Joshua's day or the people during David's day? Sure, we can agree that Israel was responsible for losing the land because of their sin, turning away from God. But does that mean that God has fully rejected them and that this, this promise is never going to be, to be fulfilled? And that's the, the question that Paul wants to ask. Notice verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? So if you're thinking, well, that was only for that one time and it's never going to happen again. God's not going to follow through on that promise because of Israel's unfaithfulness. Uh, unfaithfulness. This is one of the questions that Paul asked earlier in the, the letter. What's the point of Israel? What's the point of this special relationship that God has with Israel if Israel's not at the center of His program? If, if the gospel is going to be spread out to Gentiles now, what's the point of having the Jews? If Jews and Gentiles are on the same plane before God, that is, they're both lost in their sin, then, then what advantage is there to being a Jew? Chapter 3, verse 1 asks that question. There in chapter 3, Paul didn't answer the question. What advantage is there to being a Jew? He didn't answer it. But here he wants to explain there is an advantage in that God has not forgotten them. He has not given up on them. He has not abandoned Israel. And here's the great truth that we need to, to, to recognize this morning, that God has not stopped pursuing Israel. This is how amazing our God is. Do you remember what happened at the time of the judges? So after the conquest with Joshua, the time of the judges, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That the people would turn away from God's rule and then they would be oppressed and then they would call out to God for help. God would send a deliverer and the cycle would continue. And then David comes along. Actually, before that, remember, at the end of the time of the judges, what happens at the beginning of 1 Samuel, the people call out and say, We don't want you to be our king, God. We want to choose our own king. And so what did God do? Did He give up on them? 
No, he continued to work with them. He didn't give up on them despite their choosing of Saul. And during Paul's day, amazingly, Israel again rejects Jesus as their king. But has God given up on them? Has God turned His back on them? No, God does not reject Israel, even though Israel has rejected God. Notice the strong adversative here in verse uh, verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? And here's the strong adversative. This is the strongest way to say no way in the Greek language. It's translated for us as, may it never be, or God forbid, that could never happen, that God would give up on His promise to Israel. He would never give up on them. This is the great truth about God and His relationship with Israel. And that is that that their sinfulness cannot nullify His Word. That God has not rejected His people. Notice how it's stated in verse 2. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. So when God chooses to set His affection on a person, or in this case, a people group, that He will be faithful to His promise despite how they respond to Him. And we can learn from that 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 God also foreknew us, didn't He? And that that the thing that defines us, the, the thing that defines you fundamentally is not your position or your family or your power or your wealth or how many people know you, how many friends you have. The things that define the thing that defines you fundamentally is God's choice of you, that He chose to display His love on you. God has not given up on Israel. Instead, God has actually preserved a remnant. Verses two through six. Actually we'll we'll look at a little bit of verse one, but but here's the proof that God has not rejected Israel. We see it in three ways. First, God's preservation of a remnant uh is illustrated from Paul's faith. God's preservation of a remnant is illustrated from Paul's faith. So here's the question. Has God given up on Israel? And Paul says, no way. That cannot be possible. He foreknew them. And he will continue to show his love to them. That is, he will continue to pursue them. Here's the first example at the end of verse 1. It is, my faith. Look what he says here. May may it never be, verse 1, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. So the first proof, evidence that God has not given up on Israel is that Paul is a believer. Because Paul is just like Israel in that he had been presented with the truth of the Scripture as displayed in the Old Testament and he rejected it. He rejected God, that is Saul, as Saul. And he says, yet I myself am an Israelite. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And let me show you how he thinks about his salvation how he thinks about god's mercy in light of where he was and he serves for us as an example of what all of israel is like that god has not given up on them but he has preserved a remnant and paul's point in 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 our text in romans is not hey i'm a christian i just happen to be a jew He's saying, no, I was once a disobedient and obstinate person just like the nation of Israel, and yet God, some, for some reason, still pursued me. Look at verse 12. 1 Timothy 1, verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because He considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. 
And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example of those who would believe in Him for eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. See what Paul says here? Verse 13, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor, a murderer, God for some reason chose to show His mercy on me because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And that I, although I am the foremost of all sinners, for some reason God decided to show His love on me. Turn back to Romans chapter 11 because this is an example or, or this is proof and evidence that God has not given up in Israel. He's preserved some, and Paul is one example of that. And Paul's saying, listen, if God could choose me as part of His remnant, part of His preserved people, despite my defiant unbelief, right, of all people, who deserved hell more than I, is what he's saying, then how can it be, if He preserved me, then how can it be true that He's failed on His promise? And the truth is He hasn't second example is found at the end of verse 2, and it's the example of Elijah. Or the second proof is illustrated in Elijah's example. You probably remember the background of Elijah's story. You had wicked king Ahab who had attacked and killed the prophets of God, and he had killed them all except for Elijah. And remember what his wife Jezebel had promised to do. He promised that he would kill Elijah. And so what does Elijah do? He flees to the wilderness, and here we have the record of what he has to say. Let's start in the second part of verse 2. Or do you not know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? So in other words, here's another example of how God has preserved a remnant, and even though it's not very clear, right? For Elijah, he's thinking, I'm the only one left. Look what he says in verse 3. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. I alone am left, and they're seeking my life. But what's the divine response in verse 4? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah, you are not the last one remaining. There are still 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee to the false god. And God's point is that He has a plan that includes more than just faithful Elijah. That, that His plan inv involves the surrounding nations. And the point I think he's trying to make here is it serves to, to prove that God has preserved a remnant, and that is that we can't always see whom God has preserved. We don't know everyone whom God has brought to saving faith. That is that the remnant of Israel may be bigger than we see, bigger than we think. But it, it's all on the basis of grace. And we can have a similar mentality in our day, can't we? that we can get caught up in all the activities and programs of our little church. And, and we might look at some of the other churches who are compromising the Gospel. And we might think, you know, we're the last faithful ones remaining. And the truth is that God has many people in His program through whom He is working. And we simp simply need to trust His good and sovereign plan. See, God had not given up on Israel. The third proof of the preservation of the remnant is seen in the people in Paul's day, in verse 5. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. 
So if Israel thinks that God has rejected them permanently and completely, all they have to do is look around because there are many Jews, right? It looks like God hasn't preserved. His, he hasn't followed through on His promise. And Paul's saying, listen, He hasn't forgotten about the Jews. There's a remnant. There are some Jews who believe in Christ. That even when the nation as a whole rejects God, that they turn away from God, God still, by His gracious choice, decides to save some. And the only reason that they are part of His plan is because God graciously chose to make them a part of His plan. Not because of works. We're going to see here in verses 7 to 10, but but because of His grace. And this is explained and magnified in verse 6 where we see that all of this preservation, all of this choice that God has is on the basis of grace. You see that in verse 6? But if it is by grace... And what is it there? We need to know what the antecedent to that, that uh, pronoun is. The it there is talking about the gracious choice in verse 5. So if God's gracious, gracious choice is by grace, then it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So the idea here is if it's by grace, or the better, since it's by grace, and it is, since God's gracious choice is by grace, then it can't be by works. In other words, God's choice and God's grace are inseparable. When we understand that God chooses every believer to salvation prior to their salvation, and that that comes all on the basis of grace, it highlights not what we do, but what God has done. That God in His mercy would choose to show His love to a sinful person like me. If God chose them by grace, it cannot be that He chose them by works. That's the point. These are mutually exclusive. No one has ever been saved by works. It's always been by the gracious gracious choice of God. Otherwise, what does Paul say? Then grace is no longer grace. If it's part grace and part works, then it's not grace. So if anyone's going to be part of this remnant of Israel, it has to come ultimately on the basis of God's gracious choice, not because of our works. You see, because of God, we're compelled to choose us on the basis of something that we did, even if it were small, then it would not be grace. It would be obligation. It would be a payment. It would be like we we go to work, we expect a payment, right? It would be an earning. And what God's saying is, I can't give you anything. You haven't earned any of this. It's all on the basis of my gift, my grace. And that's what we know from Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that it is by grace that we have been saved through faith and not of ourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast, and I would say, in any way. There's nothing that we can say and say, well, look what I did. No, God says, it was all me. All of your salvation was me. And the fact that there are Jewish Christians proves that God has not rejected His people, that He has preserved a remnant. And so in verses 7-10, through Paul gives us some implications regarding Israel's current situation because when we look around, okay, God has not rejected Israel, He's preserved them, then what are the implications of that? And we might want to ask those same questions for us today. God has preserved some Jews. I know some Jews who are believers. But what kind of implications are there based on this? The fact that they have been cast off, they have been set aside, even though they have been chosen as a nation. It's true that not all Israel is saved, according to um, chapter 9, verse 6. 
there are many Jews who are rejecting God. And so what are we to think about them? That's what Paul wants to answer. What are we supposed to think about these people who are rejecting God? First, we see that blessing from God doesn't come by works. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. Those who pursue God's blessings through works have not attained, obtained God's blessing because they thought that they were receiving God's blessings because of something they did, because of an earning. And as long as we see our salvation as something we do or something we earn, we have not received it. But do you know the converse is also true? That those who receive God's blessing as a gift cannot lose it. And so we see, secondly, only those who have been chosen by God receive His blessing. God's blessing is based on His choice. Notice the second part of the verse. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. So those who receive God's blessing is, God, it's a gift. It's all You. There's nothing in my hands I bring. Right? There's nothing that I can do that I can offer to You in order to appease You because of my sin. There's nothing that I can do. I simply cling to Your cross. And that's, on the, that, that's the only basis on which we will be saved on the basis of faith in in what Christ has done because there's nothing that we can do. The rest, those who work for their salvation, are hardened. Second part of verse verse 7 says. That is that the hardening is this giving over to the evil desires of the heart that that they want to do to pursue false gods. And the result is that they are blind to the reality of God. What does this hardening look like? Verses 8 through 10 gives us a picture and a prediction of Israel's hardening. Hardening, Verses 8-10. through 10. Here, in, first in verse 8, Paul quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 4, to show that Israel had seen the great works of God during the time of Moses. They had heard the message of salvation, and they even understood, but they did not want to submit to God as their master. And sub- subsequently, they turned away from God. Notice, God gave them over to a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, and ears to hear not, verse 8, down to this very day. He also slips in a, a reference to Isaiah 29.10, a spirit of stupor. That is, a, a spirit that, that is a hardening kind of spirit. It's the same kind of hardening that was going on during the time of Isaiah seven centuries earlier. And what he's saying is, do you see what's going on? God had prophesied in Deuteronomy by Moses at the end of his life that you are not going to listen. You're not going to respond to the message of the Gospel. And what's, what's happening seven centuries later during the time of, of Isaiah? That, that there is a spirit of stupor among the Jews. And there's a spirit of hardening that they have resisted. So Paul's saying from the time of Moses to the time of Isaiah, there has been a regular resistance by Israel. And do you know what's happened in the last 1,500 years, Paul's saying, from the time of Moses to Paul's day? That resistance has continued, hasn't it? That's why he says at the end of verse 8, down to this very day. He's quoting again from Deuteronomy, but, but the point is that it's applicable to Paul's day as well. That there was this hardening from the time of Moses through Isaiah to the time of Paul, and we could extend it on even into our day, can't we? That, that in general... Israel has rejected God. There is a spirit of hardening among them. 
that they don't want to hear the gospel. They don't want to hear that Jesus saves. They don't want this Messiah who looked weak to be their Messiah. They don't want to trust in God by faith that this Messiah is coming again. They want this Messiah to come and reign now. And so they resist Him down to this very day. And what is the result of those who harden their hearts in verses 9 and 10? The result is that God brings judgment on them just as David had promised. Here David promises, Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened and see not and bend their backs forever. The promise is that those who harden their hearts will be judged by God. The worst kind of judgment that anyone can receive is the judgment of God to leave them to their own desires. Do you realize that the worst thing that God could ever do to you when you turn away from Him is not that you would be caught and embarrassed. It's not that you would have a catastrophic wake-up call like a health crisis or the loss of one of your greatest treasures or family members. That's not the worst kind of, of thing that God could do to you when you turn from Him. The worst thing that God could ever do to you or to me when we turn away from Him is what He promises to do to the hardened portion of Israel, which is to give them over to what they desire. To leave them to their sin. To allow them to continue on in the pathway towards destruction and enjoying it all the way. That's the worst form of judgment that God could ever give to anyone. And so, God says, listen, for this hardened portion of Israel, that's what's going to happen. But here's the good news. The whole passage, I think, speaks to this. God has preserved a remnant and He has remained loyally loving to the nation of Israel and will fulfill His purposes in them. Now, I realize we haven't fully answered the questions as to how, the question that we started out with, which is how is God going to bring Israel back into the picture, right? Israel seems like they have been permanently set aside by God and that this promise is never going to happen. And so we don't have the answer yet. We will have it next week. And it turns out what God is going to do, as we'll see next week, is that God is using the hardening of Israel today to help bring more and more Gentiles to Christ and eventually to make Israel jealous, amazingly, of the Gentiles who are being saved. And eventually God's going to use that jealousy to bring them back to salvation. And as a nation, they will turn to Him. So that will be the answer to the question. We'll have to explore that next week when we finish up chapter 11. But we need to see this morning uh, that, that God has not abandoned Israel. He has preserved a remnant in Paul's day and praise the Lord that He has done the same in our day. So let me give you two um, points of application. First, reflect on the loving kindness of your God. Reflect on the loving, loving, loving kindness of your God. The reason that any one of you is a child of God is not based on your works. The Gospel came to you solely on the basis of God's grace. That He chose you on the basis of His grace. And yet, amazingly, despite our faithlessness and frequent wandering away from Him, prone to wander, He continues to pursue us. He continues to pursue those on whom He's chosen to set His affection. So are you amazed at God's loving kindness for you this morning? Consider the illustration of Hosea and Gomer and how it points to God's love for us. What is 
Hosea do there? Hosea is told to marry a prostitute. And so he does. And they have two children. Lo Ruhamah, I will not show your I will not show you compassion. And Lo Ami, you will not be my people. But even with those children, God offers hopes hope in the early chapters of Hosea and says, Even though you have rejected me, even though you are Lo Ami, not my people, I will make you my people. Even though you I have not shown you compassion, I will show you compassion. In Hosea three and four we see that Gomer goes back to her harlotry and God says what does he say to Hosea? Give up on her. That's enough. She's, she, she's done enough. You don't need to be married to her anymore. She's given herself back over to false gods. No, that's not what he says, is it? He says, Hosea, go after her. And despite her sin, love her some more. Stay faithful to her despite her faithlessness. And do you know why, Hosea? And this is what the rest of Hosea is about. Because I want to show a picture in how you're treating Gomer to Israel of how I treat Israel. That is, despite their sin and regular defiance and turning from me, I have not stopped to show my affection and to pursue Israel. Friends, that's a good illustration of how God pursues those of us whom He has chosen. I realize that Hosea is talking about Israel, but I think there's an application for us that we have a loving God that despite the fact that He made us and sustained us and poured out His common grace on us, what did we do? We rejected Him. And we turned from Him. We, didn't, we did not want Him as our Father and Master. But one day, God sent to us by His mercy the Gospel of Jesus Christ and caused our hearts to be changed and He gave us the gift of faith. And so from the time of our salvation, have we been 100% faithful to God? Would you say that you've been... faithful to God? No. And so what does God do? Despite our regular unfaithfulness and turning from Him, what does God do? Does He abandon us? No. He, like Hosea, and He, like how He treated Israel, He does not abandon us. Instead, He continues to pursue us and to forgive us every time we fail. That if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, no matter if it's the first time or the hundredth time. Friends, the mercy of the Lord endures forever. His faithfulness never fails. And so reflect this morning on the loyal love that God has on those who turn to Him in faith, who acknowledge their sin, who have been chosen by Him and have received the gift of the Gospel. Number two, God's loyal love should change you, not make you complacent. Now, we might hear that God always pursues His own. God continues to go after Israel. And that might make a Jew think, well, I don't have to do anything then. If God's going to keep coming after me, I can continue in my sin, enjoy it, and it doesn't really matter. But you know, in God's faithfulness to us, He does not allow us to presume upon His grace. And so I would suggest to you that if your response to the loyal love of God this morning, the fact that God continues to pursue those who defy Him. If your thought of His loyal love is that you can continue on doing whatever you want and that, you know, God will eventually find me and restore me, then I would suggest to you, you don't understand the grace of God. Here's how Paul would say it. How can you continue on in your sin 
so that grace may abound. If Christ has died to sin and you have died to sin with Christ, then how can you go on living in sin? How can you take pleasure in, in turning from God and forcing His hand to try to, to, to reconcile you? Christians, don't presume upon the grace of God. Genuine Christians love God's grace. Yes, they count on it. Yes, they plead for it. Yes, but they're also changed by it, aren't they? God's grace changes people to hate sin and to pursue holiness. And as long as you are wallowing in your sin, loving it, and waiting for God to zap you out of it, then you should have no assurance of God that He is your Father. Because the kind of people that are members of His family are people who love His grace and who are changed by it. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the grace that You have shown to us in choosing us and presenting to us the Gospel of Jesus Christ, which we love. And Lord, we see ourselves much like Israel because we have been recipients of Your great blessing. We've grown up, many of us, in religious homes and have been able to be exposed to the Gospel at an early age. And yet, either through our ultimate unbelief or through our unbelief following our salvation, we, we turn from You, we stray, we presume upon Your grace. And Lord, we need, we need You to come and to do a work within us, to expose to us our sins and to not allow us to drift away from You fully. And so Lord, I pray that those whom You have chosen that You would pursue today like you pursue Israel. Thankful that you have preserved a remnant within the nation of Israel, and we're thankful that all of Israel will come back to a a knowledge of Jesus Christ and and believe in Him by faith. We know that that will come prior to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ to this earth, and He will restore and bring in the kingdom. Their salvation will trigger that event. And so we pray that you would save Israel in your time and that that we would be instruments in your hands to make that happen as we seek to spread the gospel uh, around the world but also to the people near us Lord we, we need your grace we want to reflect on your loyal love this morning how you've been so faithful to us despite our wandering despite our sin and obstinance at times we're thankful that you constantly hold your hand out to us but we know that that will not be held out forever for those who harden their hearts. And so, Lord, keep our hearts soft to the things of You. Help us to turn in repentance and saving faith and and ongoing expectation of what You will do and hope in, in what You will bring in the next life. Lord, help us to know specific ways in which we can do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.